Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In today's episode, we're thrilled to bring you an interview, a conversation with Gwen Shotwell, the COO of SpaceX. She talks about the reusable Falcon 9 to the game-changing Starship. Gwen has been instrumental in turning Elon's ambitious space dreams into reality for over a decade now. Um, you are the CEO of SpaceX. You've been there almost since the beginning. Um, so this this experience and this company and what you have achieved really is um, a national story. I mean, it's a, and it's an American success story. And so I think we want to hear more about that. Um, I've been told by one of your colleagues that um, in addition to your bio, which is in your pamphlet, um, that you are the real deal and kick-ass. So <laughs> I want to hear how that informed SpaceX's approach to working with the government and frankly, pushing the government. Um, what SpaceX has done is really um, break open the monopoly, frankly, on the space uh, industry that was one that the government um, w was, frankly speaking, comfortable with. And I know this because I worked on the Hill mm -hmm. um, in the Senate Armed Services Committee and, and in that old world um, before you guys broke it open. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how it was that SpaceX was able to, frankly, convince the government to open up space to competition, to give you guys a chance and, and also speak a little bit about Senator McCain's role in that, because I know that he was instrumental, uh, some of my former colleagues as well, um, were instrumental in creating the legislation and the opportunities um, hand in hand with your company. So that was a lot. Um, <laughs> I will definitely forget pieces of that question. So poke me if I don't, if worry. I don't scratch all of them. Um, just indulge me for 60 seconds. For those of you that don't know um, about SpaceX or what we do, um, I'm not so egotistical to think that everybody on the planet knows what we're doing. So I'll just, just a quick summary. So we've been in business for almost 21 years. Um, in fact, the 21st year anniversary, I, I think it's like this month. Um, and we were founded by Elon Musk, my boss of nearly 21 years, um, to do really one thing with one fundamental purpose, and that was to build a capability that would allow humanity to live on other planets. And I do remember very clearly when I was interviewing for, my, for this job, um, when he was talking about humanity living on other planets, and I was like, oh, sounds a little cuckoo, you know? Is that like, do we, well, okay. But I was really just there to sell launch vehicles, which I was very comfortable with. Um, but candidly, in the you know, 21 or so years that I've been at SpaceX, um, I really have come to believe very strongly that that is an incredibly important goal. 
um, even though it sounded crazy 20 years ago. Um, and maybe it sounds crazy to some people even today, but I think it's incredibly important for the future of humanity just to have the option to be on more than one planet. And I'm, I'm not a doom and gloom person by any stretch, but optionality is like the best way to have risk management. So it just feels like living, being able to live on other planets is, you know, a fundamental risk management strategy, you know, for the human race. Uh, so if we are to uh, build capability to go to other planets and live on other planets, what do we need to do? We need to have launch capability. We need the transportation systems that will allow us to do that. Thus, we have the Falcon program, the launch vehicle program. Um, so what else do you need? You need to be able to get people to orbit uh, and frankly land. So we have the Dragon program, which we've had this extraordinary partnership with NASA on, um, getting astronauts and cargo to low Earth orbit and return. The return piece is interesting for Dragon for sure, but that was something that has been done before, uh, basically returning people from space. What had not really been done before, at least in the way that we have selected to do it, is to bring the rocket component, the first stage of the rocket back to land. And let me tell you why that's really important. If you want to take people to another planet and, and you want a, a real settlement there, you have to go and come back, right? There has to be this communication um, between Mars or somewhere more interesting and Earth. And so you have to be able to land the rockets, right? And the shuttle was capable of landing, but it was very complex and it was not capable of landing and being able to refly immediately. Um, the rapid and full reuse is incredibly important to be able to get people this communication of settlements between Earth and other planets. Otherwise, it's a one-way trip. And if many of us probably prefer that there is a one-way trip option for some of our neighbors or people we work <laughs> with. Um, but, uh, but I think really to advance civilization, you really need to be able to go back and forth. So think about what today would be like. What would the world be like, society be like? What would our perspectives be like if airplanes were one use only? I don't even mean, you know, Sedona to Los Angeles and back to Sedona. I mean, Sedona to Los Angeles and you toss the airplane. Like we would not be coming to Sedona for this forum, right? right. Many of us wouldn't be going to Los Angeles or New York or wherever we go. Reuse, rapid reusability is key to transportation services and transportation services are needed to go to other planets. Okay, so this, I lied. This was not one minute. Okay. It's great. Take okay. your time. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> so then the advance on Falcon is Starship. And we had this extraordinary launch three weeks ago or so, kind of, and it was very interestingly divided, although I should not have been surprised. It was massive failure versus a massive success. Candidly, it was somewhere right in the middle. You know, add them together and divide by two, right? Uh, we certainly got further than we thought we would, which was great. We, there was a strong chance that we would actually take down the tower then we'd be grounded for a year till we re rebuilt the launch tower. So Elon and I were both quite pleased, even though many of the engineers working the program were a little, little sad, I was jumping for joy. So the, the deal with Starship is both the first stage, like Falcon, reusable, and the second stage, Starship, rapidly reusable. Right now we don't reuse the second stage, recover or reuse the second stage on Falcon. So that's Falcon, Dragon, getting people to orbit it back, Starship, full and rapid reuse, and then the final piece to this particular puzzle at this moment, or technology puzzle, is Starlink, global communications capability. 
Um, there's a lot of reasons why SpaceX doing Starlink makes a huge amount of sense. Um, one, one really key reason is that the addressable market or the market for global broadband is on the order of a trillion dollars a year. Even if we were to capture a very tiny part of it, 3%, $30 billion a year of business, the rocket business, you know, it's not more than six or $7 billion a year, maybe $8 billion a year. And so the financial um, benefits of having that gigantic market will help SpaceX fund our technology-driven approach to moving people to other planets. So that's SpaceX in a nutshell. Okay. So let's go. Yes. Now we go back. Phenomenal company. I mean, really um, pathbreaking, as I said. Um, you have achieved so much. We could not have imagined. We are closer to getting to Mars, frankly, because of everything that you and Elon have done. So um, can you talk to us, though, because it didn't, it wasn't obvious that it was going to happen. Right. That you had the U.S. government very risk averse. I mean, talk about probably the, one of the areas where they're most risk averse is space. It's also one of the areas where we've had, yes, we've had commercial, you know, satellites, et cetera, but largely the government is still the dominant player, controls the space of space. Um, and, and so you guys barged in, <laughs> essentially, obviously very much leveraged the power of Congress yes. to open the door to competition. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe throw in a John McCain story? Yes, yes. And I have <laughs> a number of John McCain okay. stories, actually. Um, so uh, SpaceX, there, there are kind of two key factors in our ability to have broken in um, to this business. One was NASA. Um, we would not be the company we are today had NASA not um, partnered with SpaceX, given us a Space Act agreement in 2006 to help us build the Falcon 9 and the Dragon capability, which is now servicing the International Space Station with both cargo, science, and crew. So NASA was incredibly important to this. And there were others in the government that were also incredibly important. And John McCain was certainly one of them. Um, more for sure on the DOD side than NASA side. But Senator McCain was visionary in um, looking at the state of the launch industry in, in a time frame, you know, 10, 15 years ago, saying we fundamentally are relying on one provider, United Launch Alliance, which is two, a joint venture between Boeing and Lockheed, huge history of, you know, very successful launch programs. Um, but now it's a joint venture. So it's kind of one company. So it's fundamentally a monopolistic provider. One of the systems, the Atlas systems, relies on Russian rocket engines for launch. I was going to ask you about that. Yep. <laughs> so... Even if you say, okay, we did have duality of launch. Competition is great, by the way. We are firm believers in competition, as was John McCain. All John really focused on was just opening up a crack for a company to break through, to compete, not to win, no guaranteed launches, no guaranteed money. You have to earn your keep, basically. Um, and so fast forward to today, what if the only vehicles that are flying are incredibly critical national security space payloads? that are going to help us win conflicts around the globe were powered by Russian engines. We'd be screwed, right? And Senator McCain had the vision to say, this is not right. This is not right. We should not be flying national security space missions on vehicles powered by Russian engines. So kudos to him. And that was just one small piece of it, right? He was fighting the fight to ensure that innovation 
would be allowed in government oper- government operations and programs. Right. Right. He was very much a believer that you you wanted to eliminate waste, fraud and abuse. And one way to do that, of course, would be to incite, you know, to provide competition, incentives for competition. Absolutely. Um, so now let's let's talk about today then. Um, obviously, the the Russian rocket, um, we've moved away from the Russian rocket, I don't think entirely. Um, we're still making a little bit of, we still have a little bit of ways to go. That, of course, was necessitated or it, may, it was made obvious to the world by the 2014 invasion um, of Ukraine by the Russian government. At that point, people started pushing for it, but it took a long time. Um, again, the inertia of the U.S. government. Um, today, uh, where do you see the need for more competition? Where do you see where do you see that the government is falling short in terms of fostering your efforts and competition writ large? So, it, it, I think we need to think about reforming. And I know the senator was a reformer for sure. And and I think we really need to sit down and get very specific. We have a system that prefers for the government customers to be in control as opposed to stepping back, surveying what's working, what's great. Does North Face make better gear for mountaineering and for deserts than a government contractor? Probably. Um, And so it, we've got this system and, and, and there are organizations within the government that function and only know how to function within the system. So the organizations themselves aren't terrible. The people that are running these organizations aren't terrible. But we need to really force uh, a, a rethinking on how we procure systems. Um, a, a couple of examples. In, in addition, and what's tied to that, by the way, is the regulatory element of of uh, of how you do things for the government. Um, Yeah, okay, so we need to rethink it. People are not bad, organizations are not bad. They've just been put in this system where the the belief that the only way you can be the best steward of taxpayer money is to own it, operate it, management, manage it, dictate requirements, as opposed to letting a commercial company or letting a company that has a commercial idea that will go and get investment capital, leverage their own operating revenue um, to build a system like Starlink. We've got 4,000 satellites on orbit. We, start, we've, we launched our first satellite in, I'm going to get this wrong, I think 2018. Is it 2018? Um, and now we have 4,000 satellites on orbit. So in less than five years, we put 4,000 satellites in orbit. There is not a government program that could have done this couldn't. There would be this paralysis associated with requirements and how much do you need? And I don't want you to blow stuff up because that makes it look bad. The program office looks bad when you blow stuff up, which I get. You try to be great stewards of the taxpayer dollars. But blowing stuff up is a very helpful way of learning. Take it from me. We have blown a lot of stuff up. And thank goodness we have not hurt anybody because there are regulations in place to not, to, to not hurt people when things blow up. So I'm not opposed to regulations, but the regulatory bodies need to figure out how in the world can you regulate a system like Falcon or Starlink in a way that allows us to spin these designs quickly. Um, FCC, and by the way, again, not bad people, not bad organization. These are good (laughs) Americans, right? Um, But the FCC was following their process to license a ground terminal, the Starlink. Does anybody have Starlink? 
in in the okay, I have like five of them. They're fantastic. Um, the the ground terminal, the terminal that you put on your house or your roof or your pole or whatever. Um, by the way, more of you need Starlink. There was only like three hands here. <laughs> way more of you. Um, it's the best best broadband internet available. Um, uh, so they were licensing a terminal that was three cycles too old. So by the time they finished saying, okay, that terminal is fine, it's safe, it's fine, we were two cycles ahead. And so we couldn't deploy the best technology to Americans because we had to get through this bureaucratic cycle. So bureaucracy regulations need to figure out a way to keep up with innovation or we will lose. Like we will lose. Can, can I stop you there? Yeah, you please. said you couldn't do it in America. Could you do it anywhere else in the world? Well, look at China. China wants to build Starlink too. In fact, they called their uh, constellation Starnet. Um, <laughs> and it looks similar, you know, shockingly similar flattering. to it's Starlink. It's very flattering. Because you have to publish what you're doing, right? Um, I'm pretty sure that their regulatory system is not going to be two cycles behind on their user terminals. Right. Right? because it's a whole of nation approach. China has a whole of nation approach. The United States still has a whole of government, whole of industry approach. And I think the key to, you know, commanding the position that I believe we all want to have is to figure out how to bring the whole of nation approach to the United States. That's what we should be doing as Americans. That's a great point. Well, we are sort of stumbling and feeling our way towards something like an industrial policy or something like a way to foster competition. I wonder, since we mentioned Russia and China, can you talk a little bit about how we're doing in the space competition? And also, by the way, I want to really, again, thank you for Starlink because um, many people know Starlink now because of the, the basic internet service that you are providing for Ukraine. Um, that is a, a, a wonderful, uh, I consider, patriotic mission, if you will. Um, and it's keeping the hospitals powered. It's keeping Ukrainians in touch and informing us and obviously helping them also with their effort to reclaim their sovereignty. So thank you for that. Um, uh, so moving on to the competition. So now we have the Russians and the Chinese in space. We were used to being the in the forefront um, with the Russians as the nearest competitor. Um, that is changing. Um, now we have China. We, of course, have India right behind and some of our allies and partners as well. Can you talk about how the space competition is evolving and, um, and what you would like to see the, the U.S. government do to help U.S. industry compete better? So there are First of all, if if you ever dismiss competition, you don't watch your competition closely, you will uh, get out-competed. So um, China is a powerhouse. You might say that China is behind where we are currently in space, but they are on a trajectory that is far more accelerated, potentially because of the regulations, potentially because of the whole of government or the whole of nation kind of approach to it. Um, Candidly, Chinese people work incredibly hard and they're incredibly dedicated to what they do. Um, I'm not sure they're working from home, you know, right. unless they're told to. Right. Um, so, uh, so you keep our eyes on China. I mean, again, Captain Obvious, first thing in the morning. Um, as far, now, one thing that China does not have, they do not have reusable rockets. I believe they will get there pretty quickly, but we are the only organization that can land practically on a dime 
And I think that is a very distinguishing factor for us right now. By the time they figure out how to fly a Falcon 9-like vehicle, we will be flying Starship. We're both, via, both the first stage and the second stage land on a dime. And that will be an incredible capability, fr frankly, for humanity. Um, so there's that. Russia, even though they are losing their, um, their kind of dominance in space from a kind of the young engineers in, in, in Russia are not necessarily going into space business. They're going into oil and gas. That's where the technology is driving. That's where there's money. Um, and so I believe Russia is losing their stronghold on space, but we should not ignore them because they do have capabilities in space um, that, uh, that certainly we have been unwilling to demonstrate. So how much does the, so I, I worked in the Pentagon on, in the Obama administration responsible for Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia, the defense relationship. And obviously part of that was looking at the threats, uh, looking at space. Um, how much does the U.S. government um, provide you with access to intelligence, um, warnings about potentially dangerous things that our adversaries might be doing now in space and might be planning for, a, for future contingencies? You know, when I when I'm never sure what I can say in a public <laughs> forum, I tend to zip it. OK, but I I can say that there is very good collaboration between the intelligence community and SpaceX. I'm, okay. I'm pretty sure. No, that, that it's it's good to know, because I think back to the days when many of us in the U.S. government would travel to China and we would be told, don't bring your Blackberry. So, you know, now we're talking like 2000s, <laughs> early 2000s. Don't bring your Blackberries, leave them at home. And meanwhile, our business colleagues would be flying to Beijing, you know, Shanghai, bringing their their Blackberries and getting all their secrets stolen from them by the Chinese. So I think the U.S. government has had a tendency over time to be more cautious with sharing with the private sector, which isn't necessarily always a smart thing. So it's good to hear that they are they are sharing with you. Um, there's another area where um, oftentimes we hear potential danger for the future, which is space debris, especially in the lower Earth orbit. Um, can you talk about how much you worry about that and what, if anything, the U.S. government, the international community should be doing about that? So um, let me put it, give a little bit of context to, to the, the objects in orbit. And, and I don't yes, want to. I don't any... think we all have, we're all yeah. on the same page yeah. in terms of our space expertise. I'm very far from you. I just, I know lower Earth orbit. Yep. <laughs> so if there are 50,000 objects in low Earth orbit, um, think about 50,000 people or cars or on Earth, right? That's, that's not a lot. And do not misquote me. I am not saying that this is not a risk and a concern, right? I'm just trying to give some context here. So if you had 50,000 moving objects on planet Earth and you make the shell bigger, that 50,000, actually, they're even further spread apart, right? And then you go to low Earth orbit. So that area, that shell, is even bigger. And then you also, low Earth orbit is anywhere from, you know, a couple hundred kilometers to six or 800 kilometers, right? So these objects are not necessarily close together. Um, and there's not like millions of them that we worry about. In the context of human spaceflight, you worry about chips of paint, for sure. Um, but I, I just wanted to put some context there on the numbers. The risk is that they're going fast. And they tend to be in, they t when they have, they tend to cross the, just the way 
orbits work, you tend to have crossings. And you, if, you know, two satellites were to collide, that would really be terrible. Right now, many of the, I'm going to say natural collisions um, that occur, as opposed to the, the ones that are intended, um, the natural collisions tend to occur between a satellite and an expended rocket body. Um, luckily, the, the U.S. government is really trying to get all launch vehicle providers, and frankly, I think the Europeans are as well, get your stuff out of space. So once you launch stuff, you make sure it comes in in a reasonable period of time, burns up, doesn't hurt anybody on the ground. Um, in our case, we launch our first stages, they come back. We don't leave them anywhere. We don't dump them in the ocean. Our second stages, we had designed the upper stage engine of this, of our second stage to relight multiple times. So we could do a four burn or a five burn mission for a customer and then still have enough propellant and capacity to be able to bring that second stage again back towards Earth so that we're not junking up orbit planes. So organizations should be good stewards of the, of the space environment, right? Our, our Starlink network would be crippled if we had a collision. So anyone that says, oh, SpaceX doesn't care about the space environment, look at them junking up the skies with Starlink. Well, that's kind of stupid. You know, how many billions of dollars have we spent on Starlink, which could go up in a, a, a puff of collision, call it. Um, we called it earlier when we were going to do the teledesic, not we, SpaceX, but when the community was going to do the teledesic um, system, there was a, a kind of a, a prophesized the, the teledesic winter because these satellites did cross regularly and it would basically hit and create this storm of, uh, of uh, piece parts of satellites. So anyone that spends billions of dollars on the system does not want to junk up their orbits by having collisions. So we have these autonomous ways of satellites to move. We monitor very closely where the satellites are, but there are some countries and some organizations that don't care as much. Mm -hmm. um, and so there should be policies put in place. Everybody, you should have satellites on orbit that either come back quickly, like go up for a short period of time, do the science and come back quickly, or they should have propulsion systems. And that's a tough situation because many of these microsatellites, CubeSats, they're great learning tools for STEM education. They're great ways for companies to get on orbit, learn, and then, and then create larger and more sophisticated satellites. So it's a nice engine, so to speak, for the industry. On the other hand, they do pose a collision risk. Thank you for that. I, I, this might be a little bit outside of your um, area of, I guess, responsibility, and you may not want to comment on this, but I'm curious what your perspective is on the space station and cooperation with other nations in space. So selfishly, the space station provides a huge amount of revenue for our country or for me, for my company, company yeah. not, not yeah. me. Well, my, my well, you company. do get a paycheck. I do get a paycheck. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I love the space station. I love the International Space Station. But if you put that crass element aside, you know, we are still working with Russia on the International Space Station. And I think we saw with President Nixon that sh shielding yourself from a nation and not allowing cooperation or dialogue or working together in any way is not, in my opinion, really a way to ensure global security. I do feel like there have to be pathways of communication. And I think the International Space Station is really an extraordinary um, example of how maintaining communications with nations where there are conflicts 
leaves open that path, right? And I think that's incredibly important. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I think it's, there's a temptation in the government um, and in certain circles to say we shouldn't, we shouldn't cooperate with Russia, we shouldn't cooperate with other nations that are adversaries in space. So it's interesting to hear that. And certainly, U.S. government has held the line on that despite all of the sanctions that we have against Russia. So um, it is interesting to hear your perspective on that. I, we have not much time left. Um, I wanted to see if you were willing to talk a little bit about Elon Musk's relationship with Senator McCain. Um, do you have any stories you might be willing to share with us? I, I never like to talk for Elon. He is uh, an extraordinary communicator on his own, but, but there, are some, there are some things that I do know. Um, I do know that they met and that there appeared to be an incredible connection um, kind of both a kind of a purpose-driven connection, and I think they really liked each other as well, it seemed. I do know Elon was deeply saddened. He was with the senator kind of very much towards the end, and he was deeply saddened by that. Like, Elon doesn't get very emotional um, often, and, and he was quite emotional um, in that period of time. Um, I mean, we have the senator to thank in large part to, you know, where we are today. And so um, I don't know if I can say more than that without kind of guessing, and I hate guessing. Yeah. So, but I... Don't guess, don't yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to work for Carl Levin, and he would say, uh, if you don't know, don't tell me. You know, don't, <laughs> don't make stuff up. Um, well, I think, um, obviously, you have done a tremendous job. You have been a key to his success. You are an engineer. You are the real deal and a badass. <laughs> Can you maybe in the few minutes that we have left, um, share, you know, reflect a little bit upon your experience that you've had now two decades and the success of the company and what kind of lessons you've drawn from that, um, just to share with the audience. Couple of, by the way, I, I learn from Elon, every time I get the opportunity to, to, to chat with him and be with him, I learn from him. Um, and so there are many takeaways because, by the way, Elon is SpaceX, right? He has provided the vision. He drove us, you know, to do what we're doing. And he taught us all um, kind of what. So what did he teach me? That th there's a couple of seemingly silly things, but still incredibly important things. Beauty in the office, really important. And this is one of the areas that I feel like I feel really bad for government employees. You know. Many, especially in the Pentagon, <laughs> many government offices are not beautiful. You know, they're not inspirational. And I think that should be rethought. I don't think it has to cost a lot of money for there to be kind of beauty in the office, right? You don't want to work in a depressing place. How do you do extraordinary work if you're working in a, you know, like a dungeon? And I know skiffs sort of have to be dungeons sometimes, but I'm just saying, you know, beauty in the, beauty in the office is very important. That's not the, you know, that's not the most important thing, but it was one of those things that just really stuck out to me. Like, we're early on, we're going to spend money on that? <laughs> like, okay, great. Like, sure, great. Um, question everything. Everything. This is one of the strengths that the United States has over China. Chinese people are not culturally comfortable questioning authority. Like, it's going to be that thin thread that we have candidly, because they're outdoing us in so many other ways. Um, 
questioning everything. That's what innovation is, right? It's like this thing that we're doing, this capability isn't as good as it could be. It's dumb. It's antiquated. That process is silly. We should do it better. So you question everything. Nothing is sacrosanct. Nothing. In fact, uh, many times, you know, if you hire people from the best schools, even though obviously we want to hire people from the best schools or from schools where people think you're so smart and you're so good, you must never be wrong, which is bullshit, right? Elon is wrong. Not very often, by the way. It's super <laughs> irritating. He's not wrong very often, but he is wrong on occasion, rare. Um, and he wants to be questioned. He's like, don't let me go jump off the stupid cliff. Please tell me if I'm doing something that's really dumb. And, and so you really need to question authority. Um, you need to feel, first of all, you better be convicted. Like you, you, you need to know that you're, the data shows that you're probably right before you go say you're wrong. Um, that's not, a, yeah. Um, but yeah, question authority. Make sure you are humble. Like if you scare people or if you give the vibe that like, I'm all right, I'm always right, you're never going to get feedback. Right. So how can you get better if people aren't giving you feedback or you're not getting feedback? So I think that's incredibly important. SpaceX is a culture of feedback. It's very difficult. Engineers generally don't like to communicate, not our strong suit. Um, giving feedback is hard, you know, especially giving it in a way that it's going to be received properly and then acted on. You just offend people, right? That's, that's not you know, an effective or successful approach, but you have to figure out, you know, hey, how did what you do impact me and my ability to work well and do great work today? So it's a culture at SpaceX that is kind of difficult when you first enter it, but incredibly important. I think it, it, it sounds very American to my ears as somebody who has worked in the defense establishment for a long time, where the military has a culture of hot wash, which is a term that they use for going over an event, um, you know, whether it's a military exercise or an actual war, you know, campaign, a battle, and and take picking it apart and finding, even if it went really well, what little things could have gone better. Um, that kind of um, thinking is very American, I think, and it's great to see it in the private sector. Obviously, we need it; it's essential in the military, um, and maybe more of the U.S. government could use it. Um, so, Gwen, I, we have about a minute left. Um, I, I thank you so much for everything that you've done, what your company's done. Uh, if you have one last word to say to the audience, it's yours. Um, but we thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate <laughs> it.